At the beginning of this year, in a city that I probably, probably should not name, there was a collaboration of mission agencies that serve the most hostile, dangerous, unreachable parts of the world. Places where today, missionaries are kidnapped, murdered, raped, horrible things are done to them, and yet they keep going and they keep staying. And these are the group of agencies that send them, that work with them. They're, and this, this group of people were specifically the member care things. And they came together because they knew that every agency had its own pocket, its own work and the type of things that it did. And they wanted to collaborate with the desire to discern what God is doing in these places, what is being done well as they work alongside of God, and what maybe they need to develop. And what they did is they sat in a room and they spent a large portion of time just considering what is happening, praising God, and pleading with God. And then they set up these poster boards around the outside of the room, and on those poster boards, they, they wrote down what each of the agencies did for these missionaries as they head to the field. From the time that they revealed to their church, hey, I've got this desire, don't know what to do to it, to building support, to getting prepared, to getting all the training, to connecting with an agency, to getting to the field, which is a ridiculous process. And then on top of that, because of where they're going, the security concerns, the visa things, how do you get into a nation that is completely, not just closed to the gospel, but outright hostile towards it? All of that process. And then further, as they go through the struggle of working in such an environment, how in the world do you take care of these people? This is how do you take care of military guys that are in the midst of firefights where their life is on the line every day? That kind of pressure for missionaries. I would have loved to have sat in that room. I would have loved to have heard the stories of what God has done, how we can do this better, what is rich. Because as they looked at that, they could see a pattern of things that work well and things that are weak things that are just amazing and things that they just downright needed to beg for mercy from God as these agencies came together because they recognized that they were not the ones doing mission. God was. God is the one who is on mission. And that's kind of what I want to focus on today in the book that we're going to look at. It's the small book of Jonah, but we're actually going to work our way through the whole book. I hope you had a good breakfast. Um, don't worry, it's not, Lord willing, going to be that long. Lord willing. We always say that in Bosnia. Akobogda. There you go. That means, if God that. Lord willing. Anyway, keep rolling, Paul. So I'm going to work my way through the book of Jonah because it, in an amazing way, is just downright real of who God is and who man is. It's, it's, it's bread and butter, but it's something that we need right now as we sit in this room. And you're welcome to open your Bibles to Jonah. I'm not going to read the whole book. Um, but as we work our way through it, you're welcome to read along and listen however the Lord prompts you. Um, but as you look for it, I just want to set a little context. It's an amazing book because it's kind of unique among the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's prophetic for sure because it begins with the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Jonah. That's, a very, that's like when I, you get a letter from the military or from your, your spouse or whoever's in the military and it starts out, Dear John. Or if you look in somebody's uh, kitchen and they have a list of foods on the refrigerator and there are dots on it, you immediately recognize, 
That's a grocery list. That's not my prayer request list or something. There's a genre here that people who read this would have recognized immediately. This is not a normal book. This is not an opinion. This is the word of God came to Jonah. That enough should dumbfound us that God speaks. He is not silent. What is even more amazing about that, that I truly believe and gives this book so much power, is that it is historic narrative. And I underline the historic. As you work through this book, you should be shaking your head. No way. No way. And the main reason I believe it's historic, and I emphasize this because there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe it's an allegory that teaches us about how God works in in general. I believe this book shows us how God works because it happened. It's not just telling us about it. It's demonstrating it. And Jesus himself based a very important part of his ministry on the historicity of this book. He quoted Jonah to confront the really arrogant, stubborn-minded spiritual leaders of that day when they demanded that he prove. And he said, oh, this is the evidence you're going to get. Luke eleven thirty two. 32. It's also in Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I want that to ring in your mind as we work our way through this ridiculous little book. Something greater than Jonah is here. As we, as we head into the book, simple little background so you understand Jonah, there are two main nations that feed into the response, the tension that we find in this book. And we kind of read about it in, when um, Eric read from Isaiah that it's a little uncomfortable when you read God's interaction with this nation that he's, he's using to accomplish his purposes. You have Israel, who for over a hundred years now has been split into two nations, the north and the south, and the north is plagued with idolatry. Gross, I was going to say immature, immoral, immature I guess is, is true too, immoral idolatry. The first king that ruled on them intentionally set up two other places of worship with golden calves just so that the people would not go down to the south to worship God in his temple. That's the mark that they used to measure the kings after him, his gross idolatry. And so, as God promised, he would discipline this nation because they are in a special relationship with him, a covenant relationship. He said, if you obey, I will bless. If you turn away from me, I will curse. And if you read through Kings, it is amazing and kind of shocking just how faithful God is to his word and how compassionate he is to these people. I say that last part because as we come into this time of Jonah, which is about 750 years before Christ, so try and take your mind back 2,750 years-ish, King Jeroboam is, the second is now reigning. And interestingly enough, Israel has just been decimated. It has been completely, it's lost its borders, it's lost many of its strategic cities. It is not even a shadow of what it used to be and it seems on the verge of just being completely done. And all of a sudden, Israel regains its land. Israel regains a, a lot of these cities and it seems like 
something's happening here. They're in rebellion, and yet God is showing compassion. And do you know who the prophet is who comes to announce this compassion? Jonah in 2 Kings. Jonah, the son of Amittai. So he's in the midst of this. That's Israel. Another piece about Israel that we need to grasp is the fact that usually when God's word would come from a prophet to the pagan nations, it did not end well for Israel. They were aware of this. That One example is Elisha to the general Hazael. He was the general of the Arameans who were the, the ones that were persecuting Israel at that point. And when he came to Elisha, Elisha was overcome because he realized that the word he was going to give to Hazael was the means by which God was going to horribly punish his own people. It's not a comfortable thing to be a prophet. And so you have this picture of Israel, and then on the other side, you have the Arameans above Israel, and then above them, this ever-growing over the centuries menace, this dark cloud of the empire of Assyria. And what is interesting at this point in time, for centuries, this little tiny empire has grown. But now it's on the verge of collapse. It's at war with uh, the Syrians or the Arameans, and it's at war with the Urartians. I don't know how to say their name. Um, Inside the nation, there's widespread famine. And among the, the officials and the military, there's constant revolt, constant infighting. All of the pieces that you need for an empire to just fall apart. Assyria should not have gone on from this point in time. And if you look at the extra biblical evidence, all of these pieces, it's interesting that something happens in Assyria that all of a sudden she rises up to a power that she has never seen before and spreads all the way to Egypt. Something happens. And this is where we find our story to Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Why? If you took a bird's eye view of this book, it's really a simple but amazing piece of literature. It is two, two pair, two pairs. It is a pair with three scenes in each pair. So six scenes and they match perfectly. So the the first one of each of the pairs is the commission to Jonah and whether he obeys, excuse me, disobeys or obeys. And when you read those, the overwhelming question is with the first one, what's gonna happen to Jonah? And the overwhelming question with the second commission when he obeys is, what's going to happen to Nineveh? And then you have this second portion where Jonah is with pagans, the first time with the sailors on the ship, the second time as he works with Nineveh. And the questions that dig there, the tension is, how are these evil, and I can't describe to you how evil these nations are, how are they going to respond to God? And it is dumbfounding especially in comparison to Jonah's attitude. And then finally, at the bottom of these two pairs, you have these two prayers. You have Jonah in the first one, responding in gratitude and faith. And then in the second one, you have Jonah furious. He is enraged with God, and he is done. And God finishes the book through Jonah. God finishes the book with this... uh, Thanks a lot, Eric. You messed me up. Polka. Um, Moral lesson. The the lesson for the story. (laughs) Punk. (laughs) Moral lesson to the story. It's it's the capstone to this book with these pairs. And it's, it's, it's beautiful, the literary devices 
that the writer uses as Jonah relates his story for us. So let's work our way quickly through the text so that we can... Am I losing that? When I preach in Bosnia, the room is about... It's smaller than one of these wings, so... This technology stuff drives me crazy. Anyway, okay. Let's go back to Jonah. We have our six scenes... And let's just dive into the text. Sorry, I can't resist that dive into the text. The first scene we have is Jonah's unbelievable disobedience. And I want to read this text because it is dumbfounding. It should take your breath away. Jonah has seen the working of God. God calls him to do another work. And what does he do? Verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This should be, as you read this book, it's it's like a punch in the gut. It's it's, it's that huge, what? Why would you do this? And the writer, it's interesting in Hebrew narrative because they do stories differently to us. He emphasizes this in many ways just in these first three verses. He says over and over again, Jonah goes, God calls it, says, arise. Jonah goes down, 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 down. He says, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes, Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. And then he says he's going away from the presence of the Lord. Now, usually when we think about leaving the presence of someone, that's like me taking my papers and walking out. I'm leaving your presence. And that could be what it's talking about. But I think one of the nuances that is, is in this right here is the idea of a king's courtroom. And I'm not just talking about the kings in the Lion King or something like that. I'm talking about one of those majestic kings that if you walk in their their presence and you don't get on your face, that you are a dead man. Majesty, authority, power, unbelievable. You can't shake this king's hand. There are a couple of positions you can have in that king's courtroom. The first one I've mentioned, you can be on your face like you should be. That's the right position. There's another position that is interesting, you can sit in the king's presence, but only very special people sit in the king's presence. I'm not even going to talk about that, a lot lot there. Or you can stand in the king's presence. Do you know what people who are standing in the king's presence do? They serve him. They have a special job. One example of this, we just looked at it when we were in Luke chapter 1, where Gabriel comes to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. And Zechariah questions the message of the angel, and the angel says to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of the Lord. He's not just telling him, this is where I hang out. He's telling him, I am the very servant of the king. How can you question what I have to say? I'm his right hand come to you and yet Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord do you get what I'm getting at here I'm done Lord 
I am done serving you. I don't think that Jonah thinks that by going the other direction, he can get away from God somehow, like God is located in one place or something. I really think this is his heart saying, I don't want any part of what you want, God. Scene two. Can you hear that question? Holy cow, what in the world is going to happen to Jonah? How can he dare to do such a thing? And if that's all you had, you would probably assume that it didn't end well for Jonah. Well, kind of. Look at the next scene, the Hebrew among pagan sailors. This is 1.4 through 1.16. It says that he was so exhausted, and this is interesting. I just picture him getting on the boat and the boat drifting away from the coast and him leaning on the rail and actually thinking in his head, I did it. I got away from what God wants me to do. I succeeded. And honestly, when you run from God, it's an exhausting experience. So he goes down in the belly of the boat and he falls into a deep sleep. And while he's sleeping, there's an interesting terminology that's used here. God takes a storm and he hurls it to the midst of the Mediterranean where this itty bitty boat is trying to make passage. And the word here is not natural. You get it in the emotions of the sailors. You get it in the language of the boat. It's threatening to tear apart. This storm is a storm not like the ones that we see on TV. So have this picture in your mind of drenching rain, huge waves, just powerful winds threatening to tear them to pieces because these sailors who are blue-collar, hard-neck, real men, know what I'm talking about yeah real men they are scared spitless and they are screaming to their gods why are we being punished this is not natural the captain of the boat gets down into the bottom of the boat this guy fast asleep he kicks him he wakes him up and he, and he says arise it's a little echo of what I wonder if Jonah when he woke up he's like oh not God again Arise, you sleeper, call out to your God. What are you doing? You're sleeping while we are perishing. Call out, maybe if we do just enough, the gods will have mercy. The irony here, the prophet of God is sleeping while the pagans are perishing on the deck. And so he goes up on deck and they have this court on the high seas and they lay out a bunch of questions to him. Who are you? Where are you from? It's just bat, 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 bat. And then he answers them. And it's interesting the way he answers them. He says to them, Hebrew, I am. I fear the God of heaven, the maker of the dry land and the sea. Get what he's saying. I am a chosen one. My God is overall. They understood this. God of heaven means he's not a God of the wind or the waves or of fertility or of this or of that. What, these men are super superstitious. Can I say that? superstitious men. Everything has spiritual significance to them. But he worships a God over all things who created all things. Sea and dry land is a merism, meaning everything he created. And so they look at Jonah. Just picture this on the boat. They've cast lots, and the lots, it's another mystical practice, point to Jonah. And he says, this is my God. They're in the midst of this horrible storm, and they're what do you say? What are you doing, Jonah? Because he told them that he's running from God. What are you doing? And the next question, what do we do? 
How do we get out of this circumstance? It's interesting, if you think about that, what should Jonah have said? I need to cry out, like you guys have been doing, to my God. I need you, if you can, to turn the boat around and head the other direction. No, Jonah says, pick me up, throw me in. Now, throwing someone into the calm Mediterranean Sea is a dangerous endeavor. Throwing someone into a storm like this is killing them. I don't think that Jonah is just saying, maybe God will provide a skiff or something like that for me to get to shore. I think Jonah is saying, kill me. I'm done. Throw me overboard. And you see this in the response of the men. They, they don't want to do this. I, ironically, they actually try to save his life by trying to row to shore, and that's not a good competition, trying to row against God. And the storm gets worse and worse till finally they beg for mercy because they don't want the blood of this man on their hands. They pick him up and they toss him into the raging sea. And then the impossible happens. The absolutely impossible. Everything stops. The storm ceases. Those waves, they fall down flat. The wind, just a beautiful breeze. And these men, I, I really believe it happened so suddenly, mainly because the text says this, but even their response, they were scared about the storm initially. They were really scared when Jonah confessed about his God and what was going on. They became more aware. When this storm stops because they threw a man into the water, they are terrified with a great terror of Yahweh. And it's beautiful because their end of the story is in verse 16. The men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That in the Old Testament is a beautiful picture of a faithful Israelite. They fear the Lord, they bring sacrifices, they make vows. It's an interesting play on words that we'll see again later. If that were the end of the story, it would be enough. Justice has been done. God has been unbelievably kind to the pagan sailors. But that's not it. Praise God, it's not. The third scene is this, what happens to Jonah. And it's interesting because it's a block of poetry which seems really odd in the middle of this narrative. And In fact, some scholars think that it was added later. I don't think that that makes sense because if you look at those pairs again, if you take out the block of poetry, it's like making a human pyramid without several people on one side. It'll collapse. It doesn't work. It's, it's supposed to be there. And the reason it's poetry is, what do we use poetry for? It's few words with much meaning. Great sorrow, great fear, great love, great passion. This poetry is expressing great suffering and great salvation. As you read chapter 2, it's interesting because it has this parentheses. It's very clear that this is God at work. This is not Jonah making good choices. This is all about God. At the beginning, it says that God commanded a fish and he came and swallowed Jonah. At the end of this uh, time, it says that God commanded the fish and he vomited Jonah up. It's like a, a parentheses. And the fish, are, uh, usually we think that Jonah and the whale, it's all about the whale. That's it for him. He's all done. He's not that big a character. And it is impossible what he does, by the way. In the midst of that, we have what happened to Jonah. And as you work your way through this poetry, you see him suffering in ways that are hard to describe in human language. He says the powers of nature beat 
him to death. In the billows of the, of the sea, it's this picture of horrific, horrible, drowning experience where he is taken to the very gates of hell, the roots of the mountains. He is beaten to the very end of himself and he cries out for mercy. You know what happens? Because he's doing this prayer from inside the whale. That's what happens. At his cry, all of a sudden, whoo, he's swallowed. And that's when he starts to praise God because he knows his relationship is restored. That's that temple language of bringing sacrifices, which interestingly enough, he uses the same thing that the sailors did. In verse 16, he says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And maybe the most beautiful tagline for this whole story, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to religion. It doesn't belong to a church. It doesn't belong to a philosophy. It doesn't belong to a method. It doesn't belong to a mission agency. It doesn't belong to all of these things. Although God chooses to use those, the agent behind everything is God. The only hope in this world is God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's, it's overarching to everything, and it's specific exactly to you right now in your life, exactly where you are. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we move to the second half, and it moves a little faster, don't worry. Obedience. What time am I supposed to go to, Eric? Okay, thank you. Sorry, I didn't ask before. Scene four is verses three, one through three. And it echoes the first three verses. It's this commission, rise, go to Nineveh. And amazingly this time, he obeys. What's surprising in this part is just the fact that God asks him to go again. It's unbelievable, unbelievable that God would choose to continue to use such a man to do his mission. And the question here again is, man, if God did that because of his disobedience, what is going to do because of his obedience? And we move into scene five, where we have Jonah now with the Ninevites. And I don't think that this part of chapter three is actually chronological. I think that the writer gives us a summary just like a, a slap in the face kind of summary where it's super short and just unbelievable. And then he gives us a little more detail about why this unbelievable thing happens. Excuse me. In verses three through five, it says he goes to this great city that's three-day journey. Now, a three-day journey could be that it takes three days to walk across the span of this or the, the region that it served. But another thing in the Old Testament that three-day journey is used for is official work. They, they went on a three-day journey into the wilderness out of Egypt. It, it's not specifically a three-day journey. It's also used in diplomatic language. When you went to an important city that had an important official, it demanded a three-day journey in the sense that you went and presented yourself, you took care of business on the second day, and the third day you went, up, you went on your way. I think that's the idea that we have in Nineveh. Jonah would have showed up with his great sermon and he would have gone to the king to present himself as a prophet of Yahweh, maybe with the story of what happened in the fish, maybe with laying out 
God's mercy, all we're given is this sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Write a book about that. Prayer of Jabba is nothing. This is good stuff right here. That would sell. 40 days and you're done. Where's God in that? Where's the gospel in that? Where's hope in that? That's it. And yet the whole city, from the greatest to the least, gets on their face in dust and ashes and tears their clothes. Tearing your clothes in, all, in, in this culture is it's tearing who you are. I need something. And they all, this whole city of evil people, the mark of Nineveh, they were known for their brutality. The, the horrifically violent things that they would do to keep all of the nations that they ruled under their control are unspeakable. It makes our R and X-rated movies look like the, the, the kids' channel. It is just sick, horrific stuff. Greatest to least turn to God. What? What just happened? And so the author takes us deeper. The word reached the king. And this reached is an interesting word. It can mean touched the king. And this, uh, I, I don't understand all of this. Who is this king? Who is this king in Nineveh? It could be, there are several men in this time that this could be, and yet the, the author deliberately doesn't tell us. This emperor is deified. Caesars, emperors, kings, they were arrogant to the nth degree. No one told them to bend the knee. And this king hears this message. He gets off his throne. He tears his clothes. And he commands his people to do the same. And to do it with the animals too. Interesting enough, I was running in Bielina. And uh, I ran past this shed. And as I ran by, all of a sudden, it's this huge cacophony of screaming from within this shed. You know what it was? It was the sheep. They hadn't been fed that morning, and they sound horrible. So you have this picture of a whole city crying out, lamenting for God's mercy. Turn from your evil, he commands, and from your violence. And this question again and again we hear, maybe God will show mercy. Maybe God will show mercy. What does God do? He relents. Verse 10. He turns from what he planned to do to Nineveh. And this causes a lot of problems for people because some translations say that God changed. God's not the one who changed. God stayed exactly the same to his character. The Ninevites changed. And he did not any longer need to do what he had said he would do. Now, this is a problem. We read this, it's, oh, cool, that's nice. He saved a whole city. Do you understand who these people are? If they did to us and our families and our homes what they did to other people, we would not be okay with what God just did. There's one reason I love Jonah. This is real. How, God? How can you be just and forgive a people like this. How is this? It doesn't compute. And be quite honest, if any of us were in Jonah's shoes, we would probably respond 
far worse than what Jonah does. I am not justifying Jonah. I'm just pointing out the reality, the tension that is right here. And it's interesting at the end, there's a play on words between chapter um, three and four. It says that the Ninevites turned away from their rah. So God relented from his rah, and it was rah to Jonah, a great rah. And that word is evil. The Ninevites turned away from evil. God relented of the evil he intended for them. Oh, but it was evil to Jonah. He was ticked. You ever had a hard time with what God is doing in your life? I have. And so he prays this prayer. I can't go into depth about this. What really drove him to anger is he knew God. The reason he ran wasn't all fear. It wasn't, he didn't like the idea. He knew what God was like. And that was the main reason he didn't want to go to begin with. He knew he was a God of compassion and love and mercy. Why are you going to take a message to these people, God? Just judge them and be done with it. He knew it, and so he begs God to just let him die. Let him be done for crying out loud. And if I was God, you hear this every time someone preaches Jonah, I'd be like, okay, just be done because you sure are a weight on my back. But how does God respond? He doesn't squash him. He doesn't lamb blast him. He simply asks him a gentle question. There's a, there's a mountain of implication here. Do you do well to be angry? The reality is we are angry people. Oh, we struggle with anger. Some of us swallow it. We keep pushing on. We check out of life because we just, we stop believing. Some of us lash out. We scream, we cuss, we punch, we do whatever we need to do. Anger is written all over us, folks. We are Jonah. And then he gives us this little story, this closing piece of the story, this, this story about treasure. And it says, so that's done. That's the two, the two wings of Jonah. And now Jonah goes out from Nineveh. He sits to the east of the city, and the east always has this judgmental context to it, judgment context. He sits, he makes himself a little shelter, and he looks at Nineveh to see what's going to happen to the city. Do you understand what this man is doing? God is doing this incredible work that we cannot even fathom. And he goes outside of the city, sets up his tent, and says, I want it my way, not yours, God. I want it my way. Judge them, burn them, be done with them. You see that? This is the picture that we're supposed to get from Jonah. And so God commands a plant. That plant comes overnight and grows into this beautiful shade. Beautiful shade that Jonah, and it's interesting, uses the same language here as the beginning. It was a joy to Jonah, a great joy, this plant. And he rejoices in it. And then God commands a little worm to come along, and it eats the plant, and it dies. And then God commands an east wind to come, east wind again. And it beats on Jonah, and the sun beats on Jonah, and he is just 
we've been done, now he is extra done, no pun intended. He is done done. And he screams, he begs, let me die. Look at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. This is your treasure. You love that plant because of what it does for you. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? Get this, get it. You've got to get it. Jonah, you love this plant. It is dear to you. There's something going on here. Should not I pity Nineveh? What? No! No, you shouldn't. In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's interesting, this left, uh, right hand or left, it could mean that there are 120,000 children in this city that can't tell their right from their left. Or, again, throughout the Old Testament, they talk about when it's the right thing to do or when you're focused on something, do not turn to your right hand, your right hand, or your left. And so the idea that's putting forth here is these people are so rebellious, so broken, so evil, they don't even know there's a left and a right. They are in complete darkness. And I love them. This is the part of the sermon where the preacher can back up the truck of guilt and shame and dump it on you. How dare we sleep when the pagans are perishing all around us? Do you really care about your neighbors or are you sleeping while they perish? How can we not care when God has cared for us so much? Do more, give more, be more. How can we not say just a few words when, look at this, even if you don't know what to say, just say something for crying out loud. Don't be angry at God's sovereignty. God has a plan. Do you care more for the things, this is a good Christmas message, do you care more for the things of this world than the perishing around you? Make you feel real guilty about those gifts you got. That's not the essence of what's being said here. Of course, there's a grain of truth in there. But that's not what God had Jonah written for. You see, God didn't need Jonah. Jonah needed God. If I focus on you need to do more in and of your own strength, it smacks of this idea that somehow God depends on us to fulfill his desires, to fulfill his mission. That's not true. And quite frankly, we will never love like he does. We will never be able to add anything to his work. Get a real picture of that. That doesn't mean we do nothing, but we need to have the right view of that. So you get to this end of this book and it's just silence. It's got this huge question, kind of like what I just did. There's nothing we can do. We are Jonah. This room is full of chapter four. 
How, God? How are you going to save mankind? You have promised that Israel would be your chosen one to bring reconciliation. You have given your temple. You have given the prophet. You have given all of these things. And it's just, it's not going to happen. What did we just celebrate? The coming of the king. And this king is no human king. He is the king. And he took off his robes and stepped down so that so many of us might be saved. And when he humbled himself, it's amazing how Jonah just, it declares this this need that only God can fulfill, and he did. Jesus said, one greater than Jonah has come. And he even compared Jonah's experience in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, to his experience, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, when he would die, when he would take the full pummeling of the wrath of God. And when he came out of the grave, how many have been miraculously saved? You see it? This is God at work. And it's not just a story that we talk about then. If, if, if I just moralize this and we don't get this piece about Jesus, then we, I, I love that, Jesus, then we miss what we can do. So what? He's not finished. It's unfinished what God is doing. Mission is not something that we create The church does not bring about, create an idea or an agency or handpick people. It is God who does these things. The church is called to look at what God is doing and join in. Join in. We become so enraptured with all of the programs and all the things. If I could just do this, if I had more time, if I could. And you miss the people right in front of you. I don't know anything about what's going on in your life. And God knows every detail. Take this book, plant it on your life. He is that much at work in you. All of those really hard things, and I know some of you are living in a living hell because of the things that are happening in your home. Some of you have quit long ago Where are you, God? Don't hear me this morning. Hear the word of God. He is not finished. He who began a good work will complete it. He who is the author is also the finisher of your faith. That which he perfected with his sacrifice is still being sanctified. Do you get what I'm saying? He's here. He's at work. Let that direct us as we move into 2020. So how do you pray for your missionaries? (laughs) That was my title. I didn't even get up there. I just have two simple things at the end as we think about this. Let, Let 
the story of Jonah soak in our hearts. Missionaries are just people. One of the hard things for me as a missionary coming back is usually they talk about it's the cream of the crop, it's the elite, it's the best of the best. And it's just like, no! If you knew how much I struggle with my own sin, with God's plan for my life, you probably wouldn't support me. <laughs> how would you pray for Jonah? How would you pray for him to grasp, to cling to Jesus? in everything that he goes through, to be realistic about who he is. And then the other side of that as we pray, and this takes getting to know your missionaries, getting to know exactly what's going on. Pray that their faith would increase, not that they would be able to do something funky or fancy or something like that, but they would be able to see God at work around them. We come from a tradition that shudders at talking about the spirit, that shudders at the idea of the miraculous because, rightly so, we have, we have tried to put aside some of the foolishness that is done in the name of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we're very scared to think, oh, wait, did God bring that person into my path? Oh, wait, does this urge to say something come from God? And we squelch that. I want to encourage you to take time in the next week, maybe in your small groups, Elders Baraka, maybe to do this kind of thing like this mission agencies did, to discern where is God at work? Where do I need to unplug? And where can I plug? Because it's not my mission, it's his. Let's pray. God, this morning, I don't know what to say, Father. I know, I know individuals in this room that are struggling with life. They wish that they could be more involved. They wish that something could be solved. They wish that they could be free of an, an addiction to sin. They wish something for a loved one. They wish all of these things. Lord, hear our hearts. Hear our cry have mercy use us thank you for your faithfulness give us faith we pray in Jesus name amen